All right, folks, back here with uh, Senator Gary Stevens. How you doing, Senator? Great. Great, Jeff. Good to be with you. Thanks. For, former Senate president. Uh, yes, for four years. Uh, two terms I was Senate president. I remember that. Uh, so you're, uh, you're from Kodiak, so we're in Anchorage here. I, I ran into you at the LIO open house there a couple days ago. Sure. I'm, I'm glad it worked out. Glad, glad to meet with you. I live in Kodiak. I've been there since 1970. You come to Anchorage? Do you get here a lot or do you? A lot, yeah. I have a daughter that lives here, and uh, and um, my wife is on a on a board of directors that meets here regularly. So we do get over pretty often. I told you when I ran into you at the LIO, I was writing an article the day before, night before that about this whole District M, Chris Birch uh, process to fill the seat. And I had looked back at the uh, vacancies in the Senate over the last 20 years and didn't realize you were actually appointed to a vacancy. Right. I was uh, I had been elected to the House twice and just beginning my second term. Alan Osterman was the senator from Kodiak. I was the rep and he resigned to become the fisheries czar for Governor Murkowski. And then uh, Murkowski appointed me to that seat. And so I moved to the Senate and then uh, somebody was appointed to go to the House then. Yeah, it's interesting. So so Osterman, I think Robin Taylor had um, resigned to take jobs with Murkowski. Right. And then um Scott Ogan had resigned for some conflict of interest issue. Mm-hmm. So Murkowski ended up appointing three people in a pretty he short did. period he, of time. He did. He appointed myself and uh, and Senator Stedman and also um, Senator uh, Cogill. Senator Cogill. Uh, no, Cogill had been in before us, so it would have been. Um, well, I can't think. I thought, of I thought it was. I thought it was Cogill. He, he was appointed. He was appointed at some point. Cogill was appointed um, for for a vacancy. It could be. Could be. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, yeah, a lot going on in the Senate. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your kind of history. So you were first in the in the House, but you had come to Alaska well before that. Yeah, right. I was. Uh, my family had some uh, processing uh, plants in Alaska. I, I went through the Army. I was an Army Army uh, intelligence officer for a couple of years. Oh, really? Yeah. Actually, what happened is I was uh, I was working on my doctorate at UCLA. I wanted always to be a history professor. Working on my doctorate at UCLA and was uh, drafted at that time. We had to draft. Went through basic training, advanced infantry training, and then was offered a chance to go to uh, officer's candidate school, so I did that. So then I spent the next two years as an Army intelligence officer, and a uh, great experience. Um, came to Alaska in 1970. My plan was to uh, just earn enough money to go back to graduate school, finish my doctorate, but um, my family had a, had a couple of uh, canneries in Kodiak, and uh, I wound up managing for five years. and. And actually never left. I did eventually go back and got my doctorate at Oregon, but um, always stayed in Alaska. Were you abroad at all or just in Alaska for the for the Army? Uh, no, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. the whole time. So you said you were drafted, but you were if you were in college, I thought you were exempt. You are for a certain point, but I had gone through college two years or two years working on my master's, then started at UCLA my doctorate, and the uh, draft board said that's enough. <laughs> yeah, you've had enough exemptions, and so that, oh, that's wow. the way it worked at that time. They give you a few exemptions, but at a certain point, you would get then drafted into the military. And you had taught history, right? Then, then after I after after I came to Alaska then. Actually, I had taught before that, but then I was hired after five years uh, running my family business. Then I was hired to uh, at uh, the Kodak College and, and taught history there for 25 years. I, I heard that years ago, and I have a history degree from UAA, so I love history. Right. Oh, that's wonderful. It's uh, never-ending, and in this business, you you always come up against history, and uh, 
what people did in the past and what they thought and how things happened. I'm reading now um, Team of Rivals. Oh, that's a wonderful book, isn't it? It's yeah. hard to. It's it, the only thing I don't like about that book or books like that is I try to read a chapter, at least a chapter at a, I don't want to stop in the middle. Some of those chapters are like they're, and they're so darn heavy to carry around. <laughs> many pages can't carry it on an airplane. Very um, well. So you did. You were doing all that. At what point? Why did you decide to get into? Oh well, you know, I was in Kodiak from 1970 and uh, always involved. Right, a couple of years from after I got there, I got involved in the city council, elected to the council, elected city mayor, and then then I was served on the uh, on the school elected to the school board. Wound up as as president of the school board, and then uh, took a couple of years off. Ran for the borough assembly. Then was uh, mayor of this mayor of the borough as well. So. I spent 13 years in local elected as a local elected official before I ran for the legislature. But all of that really led me to the point that made me realize I, I would really enjoy the legislature and there were some things that I could do that, that, that needed to be done. So 13 years um, local politics and now almost 20 years in, um, in the state legislature. So some folks get elected, they have no prior experience in politics and some have prior local uh, experience, in your case, quite a bit. I think you almost need it. I mean, uh, people who come in without that local experience uh, sort of miss a lot. And uh, I almost think it should be a requirement that you, that you be involved in your local uh, elected uh, officials some some way, uh, or even I, I sort of like, like it when people serve in the House before they come to the Senate. They really have a broader understanding of how the legislature works and how the House works. Well, what I kind of learned is last session, I was I saw you a lot in, when I was in Juneau covering it and I'd, I'd run for Senate twice and lost, but it was the first time I was actually in Juneau. And what I realized is most people who run, with some exceptions, if you were a staffer or if you were previous, you know, kind of worked in Juneau for some reason, most people just really have no idea how the thing works. That happens sometimes, and it, and it really is a shame because there is a learning curve. You, you know, it takes you a while to figure out what's going on, how to get things done where things are. Um, yeah, it's it, there's quite a learning curve, I think. So there is an advantage if you start out in local politics, I believe. So when you were in the, uh, let's go back to the, your house um, term and then to the Senate. Yeah. Did you, you apply? There was a vacancy. I assume you applied and then there was a... No, in, oh, you mean for the Senate? For the when Senate was, seat. Oh, uh, actually, uh, the way it worked is that um, the local Republican Party in Kodiak had a meeting. They invited me to it. They interviewed me and uh, put my name forward as uh, having been in the House to, to go to the Senate. And uh, so there were three names that were sent forward to Governor Murkowski, and he eventually uh, picked my name. I know how it happened, though, uh, both Lida Green and... Um, and um, the, the Speaker of the House at the time, were sort of their belief was that if you had to run for the House, if you had served in the House, you sort of had a, a natural stepping up to the mm-hmm. Senate. And I think that makes was sense. Was that Mulder, the Speaker? No, no, it was um, it was John um, um, uh, John uh, Speaker John. Uh, I can't think of his last name right now. It escapes me. Uh, from Valdez. Um, Harris. That's it, John Harris. Yeah, yeah. John Harris was the Speaker, and Delighta Green was the. I don't think she was president at the time. No, she wasn't president, but she was on the committee that was doing the interviewing in in the legislature. And so both of them told me later that, uh, that their belief was that it, made, it was natural that um, you move from the House to the Senate. So that's how that happened. And so then after you uh, got appointed, then, then there was a vacancy in your seat. Vacancy correct? in the House. Uh, Dan Ogg was appointed, uh, and he served for uh, two years. Then eventually he was replaced. Um, uh, that would be... By Ledoux, uh, so she ran. Uh, That's right. I think a lot of folks don't know Gabrielle was a, was a rep from Kodiak before she was a yeah, rep she from was. Anchorage. She was. Actually, when I first ran for the House, 
I ran against Gabriella. She was a Democrat. I ran as a Republican, and um, and 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 so we we bumped heads in that primary. But we got along. We got along just fine. We always have. Yeah, I saw her uh, last week. Don Young had a big fundraiser event at sure. uh, Sheffield's house. And she was talking to, to Don. I, I made a joke later. I said, "Oh, you you know you ran against him, right? Like ten years ago or something." <laughs> She's like, "Yeah, it didn't didn't work out so well." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you got um, when you put your name forward when you applied and the, the process, did you have any feeling about? Did you think you were going to get it, or you weren't sure? I mean, did you have any? Well, comment? I would I would continue in the house if I didn't get it, uh, of course. Uh, so I would you know I just elected for a two year term. And I was serving actually in house on house finance for about three weeks before I was appointed to the to the Senate. Uh, yeah, so um, you know, I think one something that's very important to me is that you know I uh, I really did not meet with Murkowski before he appointed me. Um, you know, he took the recommendation of the members of the Senate uh, instead of uh, doing interviews with um, the three of us, and he he decided to appoint me. I, I think it's it's a good principle that whoever is appointed. Um, really should not be beholden to anybody. And that's what concerns me. I look at some of the House members who've been appointed. There seems to be a feeling that I owe the governor. I'm in his pocket, and Uh I need to do what the governor tells me to. I think it's a terrible mistake. And uh, Murkowski did not strike a deal like that with me. We didn't even talk about it. And uh, I think once you're elected, um, you know, no matter what, uh, whoever appointed you, uh, you, you don't owe them anything. You become your own agent. It's like the United States Supreme Court. I mean, various presidents have, have, have nominated and named people to the United States Supreme Court and then are surprised later that they voted against them. Well, I think that's healthy politics. You know, you mm-hmm. um, you don't owe anything to anybody. What you, who you owe something to, I think, is, uh, is to your district and to the state and to the Constitution. And uh, and so you should not be in anybody's pocket. I, I, it really annoys me when I hear people um, that uh, legislators who uh, are, feel as if they have to vote the way the governor tells them to. Yeah, I've heard. I mean, I've heard that now in this process. There's with uh, you know Chris Birch, who was a good friend of mine. Very tragic passing. It seems to be the will of some folks and even people in, in power that they want to put somebody in there who's aligned with the governor on this PFD issue. And in, in Chris's case, he was extremely outspoken about his position way before it was mainstream. You know, this is going back last year. Right. And it just seems to me uh, to, to seek somebody who will do your bidding in a seat where it wasn't close. It was a very, mar- right. he won by a huge margin. Chris was a very good friend. We were very close. Um, he and maybe a couple of others of us uh, felt pretty much the same way uh, in a lot of issues. And, uh, of course, Chris always believed that he came a long ways going from a zero PFD to a, a $1,600 <laughs> PFD. Uh, but just a, just a great man, a, a great legislator, and uh, and he certainly will be missed uh, by me and by, by everyone, I think, in the legislature. So y- you're right. It is There, there is an issue there, and um, I, I don't think folks should be tied to, um, to uh, who appoints them. And it does concern me. In this case of Chris's replacement, that um, that um, the person who replaces him may not be someone who is in agreement with what he stood for, when in fact he was overwhelmingly elected. That's what the people of his district wanted, and so it seems to me. I mean, from a looking from a political standpoint, from a U.S. history standpoint, that that you need to honor the people who uh, chose Chris and who wanted and and probably want someone very much like him in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting what happens in the next few. You're going to have a say in that because uh, the Republicans are going to vote on whoever is ultimately selected. Well, we will have a say, but it's going to be very difficult because uh, with Chris's absence now, we have um, a, a very thin uh, division, actually a pretty equal division between uh, in our in our caucus. So it's going to be pretty hard, I think. 
So going back, you mentioned Lyda Green. At some point, she had actually formed that previous bipartisan coalition that was around for a long time that you were a part of. Right. Um, talk a little bit about that. It was funny because when I ran in 2012, I was younger and I was hooked up with some kind of pretty extreme people. And I actually ran that year. I ran against Lisa McGuire in the primary. And I was against the coalition. I was like, this mm-hmm. co- thing's mm-hmm. horrible. And now I look back and I think probably the coalition was one of the best things we, we ever had. Well, Lida, Lida started it um, with a coalition. Um, uh, she had, uh, there was only one more Republican. We had 20, 20 members of the Senate. At the time that uh, she formed the coalition, uh, there were 11 Republicans, I believe, and uh, nine Democrats. She formed the coalition uh, of Democrats and Republicans, and then I followed her as Senate president when, when she decided not to run. And uh, at, when I was president, we had both those, all four of those years, those two elections, we had absolutely equal, 10 Democrats and 10 Republicans. And so, of course, you can't organize without bringing someone over from one, one side or the other. And that was an interesting time. Uh, 10 10, it doesn't happen very often. And even when you get 11, it's still, that becomes a, everybody has a, a veto. Well, that's right. Uh, so you need to go, I mean, I've, I've been around enough organizations now, 19 years, that uh, you need to have a healthy organ, a healthy um, caucus. Uh, probably uh, 14 is, is, is good, and 15 would be better. But if you can get 14 folks together that agree in a caucus, uh, you can, well, you can certainly get into the uh, Earnings reserve and into the um, into the CBR the constitutional budget reserve. So, it's important to have those numbers. Otherwise, if you've got eleven, you're right. You're you're going to be uh, just in jeopardy all the time because one person can just stop everything. So, when you were president, you know, under the the coalition, I mean, there were some pretty big personalities: Hollis French, Bill Wilikowski, and then right. you know, on the other end, there was more, more kind of Kevin Meyer, um, uh, Lisa McGuire. What was it? I know there was some. I guess an agreement. They kind of put the social issues aside. Is that right? Or it was they... pretty a pretty healthy, um, actually pretty healthy. I think uh, caucus for those four years. Um, actually, Hollis was chair of judiciary. He did a great job, mm-hmm. and he, even though he's a Democrat, I'm a Republican. As Senate president, as chairman, he was chairman of judiciary. He always let me know what was going on and what his plans were. Um, I did have a very interesting resource committee. It was uh, chaired by, by two people. One was Lisa McGuire, a Republican, and Bill Wilkowski, a Democrat, which you'd think, wow, this is never going to work. But it really worked well. I mean, they worked well together. They shared responsibilities, and uh, they only moved ahead on things that they could agree on. So it was a very healthy situation, I think. Was there ever any times where, you know, there were some fundamental disagreements where you had to kind of act as the arbiter or come in and kind of make make, make oh, yeah, peace? Oh, yeah, always, always. You know, <laughs> every, the, every day. <laughs> the Senate president is, <clears throat> in many ways, um, it's sort of a babysitting job. You know, people have little meltdowns or problems, and you've got to try to solve them. And uh, and everyone, I mean, not everyone, but many people do. So, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a great experience. I loved doing it. So as Senate president or um, or the speaker, in that case, you, you kind of run the floor meeting, um, the session, you really can't say much, right? Unless you, you can't say anything, really. You know, you're excluded from saying something on the floor, unless you step down from the podium and turn the the, uh, the gavel over to your probably your majority leader. Did you ever do that? Or? I did do that. Uh, yes, I did it once with uh, with great response and uh, and uh, and uh, and probably paid for it for years. Uh, the issue that I I gave up the chairmanship. I passed the gavel on to, um, I believe it was Kevin Meyer at the time, in order to speak against Senate Bill 21, which was the, oh, yeah, uh, I, I remember the, that. the big um, well, uh, the tax issue on, uh, um, on, um, on the oil industry. 
I was have never been um, uh, very fond of uh, the oil industry getting bigger than what I thought was their fair share. I thought we needed our fair share, and Senate Bill Twenty One is being revisited now, and many people are saying we we should never pass it in the first place. But I voted against it. Uh, so did um, Bert Stedman. We're the only two Republicans that voted against 11, Senate Bill Twenty One. Eleven to nine. I remember mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that's true. So it's uh, was it hard going from you were Senate President four years? Is it hard going? Back to just regular senator? Uh, it is a little, I suppose, but it has to happen. You know, we have a, a tradition in the Senate. Um, uh, no one has ever stayed longer than two terms, four years. That's the most any any president has stayed in, in the position. Usually it's two terms, uh, two years, and that's about it. Most of our Senate presidents have served only for two years. And then if you want to stay and keep involved and you care about the whole system, uh, you do need to go back to other positions, other jobs. I, I went back to uh, chairing um, Ledge Council, which is an interim committee that has uh, an oh, yeah, you- response. You had to deal with the uh, LIO fallout, didn't you? Yeah, uh, that was <laughs> on my watch. We had this um, this LIO downtown the, um, that was costing us $4 million a year. Uh, and w- at the end of 20 years, we wouldn't own it, you know, and it was just a, it was really a drain. So uh, we began looking into what we what could be done and then uh, decided it was best to get out of that contract. And eventually we bought the Wells Fargo building. So, so there are lots of things you can do as um, – a former Senate president, uh, you know, uh, you're still, uh, you've had that experience. You know how things have gone in the past. Uh, I have a great relationship working with uh, Kathy Giesel, and she often asks me how we did that thing, how we did this thing. I, I certainly have great support for her and think she's doing a wonderful job. But it's nice to have in your on, your, on the floor of the Senate uh, some people who have had the experience that know what's gone on before and how you get out of problems. This seems to be one of the issues in the House is there were so many new people in there. And especially this last session when it was this, there was no organization for a month. I think that became, in their mind, the, the, what's normal, which was very abnormal. And, um, you know, all these new people come in and they don't really have context, background. They see all the chaos and they kind of see that as that's that's their reality. Right. And, uh, I, you know, I, th- I think next year you look at some of the people who, who might not even run or might get beat. There could be a whole other group of new people. Oh, it could be. It could be changes. Well, I have uh, real respect for the House, uh, having served there for uh, two years and two months, nine days, something like that. You know, uh, so I, I know how I know how it works. Because, you know, you wouldn't think going from twenty members of the Senate to forty members of the House would be that different, but it really, really is. You just have so many more factions. Particularly this last uh, this last time around, uh, I think the Speaker had uh, just enormous problems he had to face, and he's he's done a good job as well in making it work, and he's been really good for us to work with too. So. Going forward, I mean, there's this issue of uh, the permanent, you know, the 1600, and governor's not very happy about that. There's been talk about maybe a sp- special session uh, to deal with the formula potentially. Right. Uh, so we think that'll occur, occur probably before Thanksgiving. The governor would call us in a special session. Um, right now, it looks like the only thing on that is increasing the permanent fund dividend to uh, $3,000 from $1,600. Um, you know, there's not the support, definitely not the support in the House for that. Uh, if that's the only issue on that special session, then I think it'll be a very quick special session. We'll probably call ourselves in and call our, and, and, and adjourn because there's just not a, a an intent to move uh, in that direction. I mean, I think we all realize that a three thousand uh, dollar permanent fund dividend is simply not sustainable. And um, and you know, I, I know many people who who um, who just really want their 
that maximum dividend, uh, and I've heard from lots of people saying that uh, before the governor's um, vetoes, uh, uh, almost all my emails were, give me my $3,000, I deserve it, it's my God-given right, and I want $3,000. But frankly, after the governor's vetoes, I think uh, many reasonable people began to say, well, wait a minute, uh, uh, if, if we get a $3,000 dividend and we lose all of these services, we lose 41% of the university and on and on and on, that many people are going to say it's, it may not be worth it. And, and maybe a $1,600 dividend or down to a $1,000 dividend is more reasonable. It is sustainable. You know, we can do a $1,600 dividend forever, <laughs> virtually, you know. Uh, as that uh, permanent fund keeps growing, it's um, $65 billion now. In about 15 years, it should be $100 billion, you know. Um, I think we can continue to make some use of the earnings reserve, uh, give people a dividend, some earnings reserve to pay for government, uh, a dividend, and then uh, uh, to use some monies to um, inflation-proof the dividend. So I, I think it's we're in a very good spot. Um, I don't think we need to have an income tax. I mean, I think if we wisely use the permanent fund, we can avoid ever having an income tax. Uh, well, I, I did a podcast with uh, David Teal there on Juno month, month, a few months back, and we're talking about all this stuff. And you know, I said, do you have meetings, I assume, with your counterparts and you know, every year? And he says, yeah. And I said, what, what do they you know, think about Alaska? And he said, they think we're insane. I mean, they're, they're fighting over how much to tax. We're fighting over how much money to give out. That's right. And we yeah. have all this money yeah. in the... In the in, and I tell people... And it's it's not like it's a hundred years ago. You can go back and watch Hammond on TV and, and debates, and you can see all this stuff. The, the whole purpose of the fund was created to turn a non-renewable resource, oil, into a renewable resource, the permanent fund, at a time when oil could not sustain us anymore. And right. we're at that time, but well, nobody wants. I, some people don't want to accept that. I remember voting for it uh, when we voted for the permanent fund long before we had the dividend. We voted for the permanent six, fund six years before, I think. Yeah, right? and uh, it was sold to the public as a rainy day account. Uh, that when oil ran out or when we were getting less money out of it, we would use it to run government. And I think that makes perfectly good sense. You know, I, I do believe that that permanent fund is the most marvelous thing that has ever occurred. I mean, it's it'll it'll stand us in good stead. for If, we, if we're wise, if we don't overdraw, we will have that fund around forever. So we did pass um, a couple of years ago um, a maximum uh, withdrawal from the fund of 5%. Well, actually, for a couple of years, it's 5.25%. But 5%, you can take out of a fund like that and um, and help sustain government uh, well into the future. As I, I was talking that eventually that fund will be $100 billion. Well, 5% is $5 billion. You know, $5 billion pays for government. It pays for um, a, a dividend, a reasonable dividend. It pays for uh, inflation-proofing the permanent fund. I mean... And we'll, we, st- and we'll still we, have, hopefully at that point, we'll still have oil revenue, so we'll have right, more than right. five. We'll yeah. have the five from the permanent fund and then the other oil revenue. I just think we're so lucky. And um, and you're right. I've talked to other states. I know other legislators around the country, and uh, they would just you know give the right arm to have uh, uh, $65 billion in the bank. So do you think next year, I mean, if this formula still is not resolved... Next year is an election year. There's going to be the budget issue again. I mean, there's something else I was going to ask you. Do, do you why do you think the governor vetoed the five and some billion transfer from the earnings reserve to the to the corpus? That's I think very odd is, to me. It, it is odd, but I think he was probably concerned that uh, we might be spending down that earnings reserve too fast and may not be able to give a three thousand dollar dividend. So I, I suspect that's probably why he was uh, against transferring that money. But we can do it any time, any year, any given year. We can transfer money from the earnings reserve into the permanent. Funded. And you know, the only difference in, in that is that we cannot touch the permanent fund itself. That's off limits to us. We can touch with a majority vote the earnings reserve. So I believe we should keep 
pumping as much money as we can afford uh, from the earnings reserve into that permanent fund to keep it growing on them. Yeah, it, well, it's not going to grow the fund. The whole fund is $65 billion. That counts both the permanent fund and the earnings mm-hmm. reserve. But uh, to put that money, as much money as we can, into the untouchable permanent fund itself, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I was also going to ask you about the, uh, I've never seen this, but I want to see it, the Kodiak uh, launch facility. Right. That's uh, going pretty well. You've you seen some, some of those rockets? Yeah, I have. I, from my backyard one time, a few years ago, I, I didn't go out there and saw this beautiful, beautiful sunny day in Kodiak, and you saw this uh, rocket go up, making this big arc. It's just a beautiful sight. I've been on a non-voting um, ex-officio member of that board for a very long time uh, because of our legislative session this year, which lasted about six months. I, I haven't attended any meetings, but now they're doing even more things. So I think it's a, it's a great asset. Um, you know, it'll never be used defensively. It's, that's not its purpose. It's for testing. And, um, and, and it'll, it'll, it'll never be a great um, uh, uh, asset to Kodiak in the sense of bringing a lot of money in, but, uh, you know, there's hotel spaces, restaurants, and there's all that when they bring in experts, real real rocket launchers to, to do the launches, and they've got several things on the uh, on the way, so I think they have a great future. I, wanna, I definitely want to go see a launch at Oh, some you point. should see a launch, yeah. yeah. So, so you, you, you're up next year for, have you thought about what you're going to do next year? Uh, I have. Uh, I, I was Telling my wife I was thinking about retiring, and she said, "Are you like going to be around the house all the time?" And, and so <laughs> I, I realized that uh, I'm not ready to retire uh, unless the public throws me out. They can always do that at any time. But uh, I did file for uh, another four-year term. Oh, you did? Okay. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I think there were some t- folks didn't know what you were going to do. So. Yeah, I was I was thinking about not doing it, but then, frankly. Um, you know, the political issues now, I think it's more and more important that there be moderates. And I am a moderate. I'm a Republican moderate. Uh, um, uh, yeah, so I, I think that voice needs to be heard and but, but, it should not be lost. Bill Maher calls it a Republican classic. You know, just that kind of, he always jokes about the Republicans. Some of them now have gone way to the, the kind of the Trump side. And he's, yeah, he's like, yeah. I miss Republic. He, he jokes a lot, though. How, he said how bad at the time Bush was, and he's like, I miss Bush, you know, <laughs> I miss Republican classic. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, the party has changed over the years, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm a great fan of uh, Senator Ted Stevens. I've done a lot of research on his life, and he was definitely a, uh, a moderate when it came mm-hmm. to the Republican Party, and it didn't bother him, and um, and he was called a rhino, uh, but it didn't. he didn't care about that, and he did what he thought was best for Alaska, you know. How many times have people asked, Asked you if you're related. Oh, a, a lot. And uh, I always deny it, though I, I do believe that if you go back far enough, uh, when the Stevens came over uh, to Jamestown, I, I think we have some connections back there, but 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 no no direct relationship. Um, other thing is you ran well, like— I should tell you, I, I do believe that 20%—I've always joked that probably 20% of the people who vote for me think they're voting for Ted, which is okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, Great. It's a real advantage, yeah. Uh, so last year you ran for lieutenant governor. You were on the— I but, did. But you didn't really—I was going to ask because I think you got— like ten percent, didn't you? Yeah, no, I got. I came in third. I, I didn't. Um, you didn't. You didn't do much. No, I didn't do anything. Okay. I didn't. Didn't gather any money. I didn't uh, spend any money. I didn't do any campaigning. Uh, I, I thought at the time it would be an interesting thing to do to be involved in that, but honestly, uh, well, just quite honestly, uh, I, I just don't agree with with the governor in so many ways that uh, and worked with him in the Senate for several years and I just knew that that would not work at all so uh, once he was the candidate I knew I, I did not want to run but you still got third out of six and you didn't do anything yeah right yeah so there are people, people came in fourth and fifth who, who did work hard and uh, so that's interesting <laughs> maybe it goes back to that that Stevens maybe yeah, yeah Stevens thing people thought the Ted was running again <laughs> 
So so next year it's going to be round two of this budget um, mess, I guess whatever you want to call it. And he's governor's basically said he's the first round of cut that was kind of round one. Now now there's going to be a round two. Right. Um, do you think that's going to be the same as it was last time, or is it going to? Well, come- what really concerns me, honestly, about um, about next year is K twelve. Uh, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of education of the university and K twelve, and I think it's really important that we provide that for our kids and everyone's kids here in Alaska. They have access to a quality education in K twelve, and and also a strong university so they can go on to gr- to college and grad- graduate school if they want. So it really worries me what the governor's plans are for um, K twelve. I know. When I was uh, in the Senate with him, he proposed um, um, a voucher system, Vouchers, uh, yeah. which I, I just don't like. It seems to me that we need a, a strongest K-12 system we can have, and um, and that that plan, that voucher system would have sent money to uh, state monies to religious and private schools. I had nothing, nothing against them. Sent my kids to a religious school, but we paid for it too. So uh, I, I don't think the state. I just don't believe the state funds should be sent to private or religious schools that's i know many people disagree with that but uh and i know that's a strong point that the governor want uh, that the governor really when he was in the senate he proposed a, a voucher system and, and uh we were able to stop that so uh i don't know what his plans are in k-12 he really couldn't do anything this year because we had pre-funded k-12 uh about a billion dollars for th- this coming year and um he could not veto that and i th- we were in court now trying to that make get that it, it became a pretty i wrote i wrote about that early on when it wasn't really i kind of wrote the first story i got some memos mm-hmm. back legislative memos and th- there was that whole uh issue that he, he thought that was not something that could be appropriated well that's right and we disagree with that uh, we have always <coughs> well the reason we have early appropriation for k-12 is to avoid the pink slip you know that's been an enormous problem uh, we pass the budget virtually almost always too late for uh, the districts and they have to get sent out pink slips fire people let them go let them know they can't they're not going to have a job i mean that's a terrible situation and uh, many of those people say why should i stay in a state in a state that can't guarantee me a job i'll go to oregon or washington where i can have a job and, and do just as well. So uh, the main reason for early funding is to avoid that pink slip. And I think it's a valid thing. We believe we can do that. And and actually, many of us, uh, I know Senator Von Imhoff would like to go to a two-year uh, budget cycle mm-hmm. so that you pass a, a budget, a two-year budget. Um, and, and that makes a lot of sense. We should we should be able to do that. The governor, actually, i got to say, in a couple of instances, has also almost talked about early funding. He's a uh, Certainly, early funding of the of the permanent fund. He's talked about that continuing uh, early funding of the university. He's talked about that with the university and sort of struck a deal with the university uh, on what the funding would be in the next two or three years. So, I, I don't think early funding should be off the table. It's it's reasonable. It makes sense. Now, people have said, "How can you do that when you don't know how much money you have?" Well, we never know how much money we're going to have. We pass a budget, assuming that funds will come in as they're supposed to, and if they don't, we we make changes. But we never have the money in the bank for a year, even mm-hmm. a year ahead we, and nor do we have it for two years so i think uh, early funding makes sense and um and we will see now we're in the midst of that lawsuit i'm chairman of the ledge council and responsible for the lawsuit against the administration on on uh, k-12 education so we'll see where that goes but i expect i mean you never know what's going to happen when you go to court but i expect that because having read the constitution a few times i think it makes sense that we're going to be allowed to do that and and we we'll see who wins but i suspect we will you mentioned the university deal i was going to ask you what your thoughts were about that it it came out kind of i was at the meeting they they signed the agreement it it almost looked like (laughs) i made a joke it looked like if if you were 
behind the camera, there could be some people with with the guns and signs and say, read, read the read this. But well, you know, forty one percent the governor proposed a forty one percent cut of the university would be just disastrous. And having worked for the university for twenty five years, and I have no connection with the university anymore. I'm not have not been employed by the university for twenty five years, and I have no intention of ever being employed by the university. But but I still, as a former professor, uh, really think that uh, a strong university is very important. So a forty one percent cut of the university, as the governor first proposed, would have been um, probably about half your faculty would have to be fired. You'd have to get rid of half your faculty in order to get to 41%. Well, it's become more reasonable now. I'm glad he's changed his mind on that. Uh, the issue of uh, the governor cutting a deal with the university on what funding they'll receive for the next couple of years is is really pretty bogus. That's our job. We are the only ones who can allocate money. Well, so the legislature does it, not the governor. And, well, that's what I was going to ask. I had asked them what, what involvement the legislature had, and I was given a vague answer. Well, they were they were informed, and I said, "Well, when were they informed? How were they informed?" And afterwards, talking to legislators, um, I got the sense they were not at all involved in that process. They were told about it before the press conference. Well, as chairman of uh, of education, uh, my responsibility is. K-12 and the university. I never heard anything about that. Uh, I mean, it's okay. Uh, I'm sure the university is happy, as they should be, that they have some uh, more funding than they expected uh, from the governor. Um, but, and but, then, you, but you guys appropriate. We appropriate. And, and he, he cannot pass it. But, but uh, you're right. The governor cannot appropriate. Only we can. Of course, he can veto it. That's always an option. But we can override the veto if we if we get angry enough and upset enough at what the governor is doing. So will there be will there be another round of uh, override votes based on this last bill that was sent over? It depends. You know, we've got uh, five days, I believe, to override the governor's veto whenever we go back into session. So oh. we can do that again, and uh, and we'll see. Uh, I uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it depends on where the Senate and the House stands. I would guess that. Uh, that would be something we could do very early, but we'd go through the same process. Um, I'm not sure we're in any stronger position now to get a three-quarter override. That's a high bar. No state has uh, requires a three-quarter vote to override a governor. Mostly it's a two-thirds vote. So, so we've got to get 15 folks in the Senate. You know, um, and out of out of the 60 total, we've got to get uh, 40. That's that's really hard to do. Yeah, 45. Not oh, 45. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's that's, that's tough. Yeah, that, that is a very high bar. Uh, most states, as I say, do a smaller amount. I think only in the past 20 years, I mean, I think Parnett, Parnett, Palin had one and Murkowski maybe had one. It was very, very rarely happens. Very rarely, yeah, because because it's such a uh, such a high bar to, to reach. Well, Senator Stevens, I want to thank you for doing the, the podcast. Maybe we can do another one if I'm, hopefully sure. I'll be in Juneau next year. And Sounds good. For, for the session. Good. I want to say, I always, uh, when I first got into politics, I didn't really know who you were. I knew you were a senator, but I've watched several of your floor speeches and very eloquent. You're a very you're a very good orator. I like I like when you give a. I think you did one about um, the Apollo landing. There's a, yes, recently it's just a great experience. I have thoroughly enjoyed being in the Senate, and um, and I said well, I'll run again. Uh, public can decide what they want to do. My district is Kodiak, Homer, Cordova, Yakutat, Seldovia. It's uh, all across. Well, the So you have a bit part. of southeast there too. Well, in Yakutat, yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. I need to get to, I've not been to Kodiak yet. I've, it's, I've been all over Alaska. I've been here 15 years. I, well, it's hard to get to. You're not going through it to somewhere else. It's, gonna, a, it's my, an end destination. My buddy Kale, who does video work, he um, went down there, uh, I think it was last summer, with his uh, girlfriend and took the ferry, and he, he explored the island for a while and made a really cool video. And looks, it's, looks, it's been the most beautiful summer there, as, as it was here as well. Were you there... Uh, 
last year when they had the tsunami warning deal for a couple hours? I, I wasn't. We were. I was in Juneau. And my wife had just landed hours before that, and uh, and so and I have I have a daughter and son-in-law and uh, two granddaughters who live there. So we're very concerned about them. I remember the the guy, the random guy with the Facebook Live. You hear about that? No. This guy who lived in. Um, uh, Zinky, I guess. Oh, you Zinky. Zinky. Yeah. So he had lived there, and he just some random just guy who lived there, and he uh, there was a whole tsunami warning deal, and it was like, what's going to happen? Is it going to happen? And um, I was watching his live feed, but his live feed got, I mean, it just got crazy. Oh, I did see that. You, yes. I mean, it was all over the yeah, world: Sweden, right. Russia, Australia. Right, right. All these people were talking. He was just kind of a really just you know kind of plainly spoken guy, yeah. and, and it was hours and. Uh, there was like one point there was people saying the the bay was going out and and there was nothing ended up happening you know but it well, was it, just, is, it was really interesting my wife was uh, she was not there her family they were there at the last great earthquake and she was in uh, in school and so uh, she couldn't reach them so she didn't know for I think about five days uh, that her parents were even still alive uh, oh, and wow. all of the, all the some of the radio announcements were that Kodiak had been inundated and uh, many deaths there were some deaths but. Uh, um, so now today, it's so interesting that you know I could call on a cell phone my my daughter and uh, and my kids and my wife, and so I knew immediately they were okay. So the great advantage we have yeah, these days, technology. Yeah. Well, thanks again for doing this, Senator Stevens, and uh, we'll hopefully Anytime. do this again next time when I see you in Juno. Okay. Enjoy your stay in Anchorage. Good talking to you. Thanks, All right, folks. If you uh, have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast with me, let me know, and we'll uh, talk to you next time. Landline.